Welcome to the Sweet Adversity Podcast. Adversity is an opportunity, not something to avoid. Each week, we bring you people across different fields and life experiences to help you unlock your ability to be resilient, opportunistic, and successful. I'm your host, Nick DiNardo. For show notes and more details about these conversations, please visit nickdenardo.com forward slash sweet adversity. Now on to this week's show. Welcome, welcome to the first episode of the Sweet Adversity Podcast. I'm your host, Nick DiNardo. In this episode, I'm excited to bring you David Burkus. I had a chance to sit down with him last year. He's the author of The Myths of Creativity, The Truth About How Innovative Companies Generate Great Ideas. He writes regularly for Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Psychology Today, 99U. He's a great writer. Has his own podcast over 600 uh, 600 episodes, I should say. There, it's focused on leadership. It's called LDRLB. You can find it at ldrlb.co. And he's also an assistant professor of management at Oral Roberts University. We deconstruct his book, The Myths of Creativity. We apply it to um, how to improve uh, workflows in schools with education and also why it's so important with adversity, how we can bust down myths that typical uh, people have with adversity. It's not something that we should be avoiding. It's something that we should be leaning into and busting through. So without further ado, here's the episode with David Burkus. Hope you all enjoy it. Hey, everybody. Very pleased to have my guest today, Assistant Professor of Management at Oral Roberts University and the best-selling author of The Myths of Creativity, uh, David Burkus. David, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure. So we always like to start off by talking about the guest journey, how you grew up, um, education, and kind of what drives you today. So take it away. Yes. I mean, how much time do we have? Um, <laughs> so I'm a, I'm, I'm a really rare person. So I live by choice in the middle of America in a city most people don't even know is a city, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, I actually secretly, I love it. Uh, every time I go to Austin, Texas, people who grew up in Austin tell me how it was so much cooler 20 years ago. And when I listen to them describe how what it was like, it's kind of like where we are now, a Midwestern city that's coming into urbanization. It's a, it's cool. I like it. So I live here by choice, but I grew up in the Northeast, um, Philadelphia and, and Boston, moved out here to go to college, um, started out actually as a, as a writing and English major, uh, wanted to be that sort of great American novelist. But somewhere around junior year, I started taking some classes in uh, work communication, work behavior, that sort of thing, got really fascinated with how people interact, uh, especially how people interact inside of organizations, just started to develop some um, intellectual heroes outside of nonfiction, people like your Malcolm Gladwells and Daniel Pinks and Stephen Johnson's really good storytellers, but people who were writing about social science um, and then had this realization that, I mean, that was, that was this amazing realization that these people are great writers. Um, to some extent, they understand social science, but uh, I've spent now this time being fascinated with it. What if I went to study both sort of simultaneously? So all of my grad work is in organizational psychology uh, up through doctorate in, in leadership. And then I continue to study sort of how to be a better writer um, so that maybe in the hopes, you know, 40 years from now, I can look back and go, yes, I, I did both. I told a really good story, but I was true to the research. Um, better than anybody else. I don't know if that's true. Johnson and, and Gladwell's remain intellectual heroes of mine. I've got a long way to go to get paired up with people like that. But uh, I have having a bunch of fun uh, doing it. And so um, about five years ago, started a podcast on leadership, innovation, and strategy. 
the podcast turned into a broader platform from which to write and spread my ideas, but more importantly, other people's great ideas. Uh, and then the most recent iteration of those sort of great ideas is the book, The Myths of Creativity, which is a, a compilation of lots of other people who are brilliant researchers research on creativity with uh, my opinion of the stories that we tell ourselves about our creative abilities and how a lot of times those uh, don't line up with what the researchers know. And so there's a gap there. I call it myths because they're stor false stories that we're telling ourselves. And my job is to help bust them or rewrite them, however you want to put it. So yeah, that's me in, uh, I feel like Austin Powers. This is me in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. And, and the podcast, let's mention that. Um, so, so the podcast is a fantastic podcast for anybody who's listening. It's called the leader lab. It's L D R L B. Definitely, definitely give it a listen. Dan Pink's been on and you've had some other great guests as well. So uh, let's delve into your research about creativity. Cause I, I'm really interested in the book. I love how you organize it and structured it, and it makes some really good cases here about some misperceptions about creativity. So what do most people get wrong when it comes to creativity? So I think the number one thing that, or at least is most common, it's definitely not the most damaging, but the most common thing that people, uh, at least you hear it in the way that they describe creativity, you hear these vague terms where people uh, so often des describe it like it's this... Um, outward experience like it's almost a, i use the term a lot of times. people talk about it like it's a religion right like it's an out-of-body experience to be creative and yeah. and you know very few people still believe in the greek muses but people will still say things like the idea just came to me which which pr should prompt follow-up questions like okay where was it before who brought it to you etc cetera, etc cetera. but we still use that terminology um, and I think that brings up this idea. I think we do it for two reasons. Uh, one, we've all had this sort of elated eureka thing that, that, um, science can explain why that feeling is occurring. Um, but beyond that feeling occurring, I think, uh, I, I think it lets us off the hook. I think there are so many people out there who were creative. Everybody was creative at one point. Everybody went through kindergarten, which for a lot of people, kindergarten was the peak of their creative, creative expression. Um, so, but we, we eventually separate out between these people that we look at as paragons of creative ability and then quote unquote normal people or, or muggles to steal a Harry Potter term. <laughs> and the muggles want to tell themselves this fun story about how it's, it's not in the cards for them. And so if you use terms like it just came to me or, oh, that person is just gifted or they're just, they have the right, they have the creative gene, then you let yourself off the hook because it's not your fault at that point. It's not a result of you're not trying and failing. It's a result of uh, the gods, quote unquote, uh, or the muses not giving you that ability. And that's, that's simply not true. The science doesn't support it. Um, I truthfully, I don't even think uh, a lot of those old muse stories and a lot of the religious ideas around creative expression don't support it, but we use it as an excuse because it lets us off the hook. We don't have to do the dangerous work of being creative. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and it really goes to the, you know, kind of the fundamental question that everybody talks about, which is nature versus nurture. And I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I can't, you know, how can you be a human being and think that it's all kind of out of your control, out of your hands to do the hard work, to actually really take action on things in, in the appropriate manner. So, so I tend towards the, the, the nurture part of things rather than kind of nature. But. You know, I think, and I think most people who are, uh, for lack of a better term, most people who are achievers, I think do. Um, I think the people who like to favor a nature debate are the people who, uh, aren't internally driven, aren't, and just want to find a, a, a logical reason yeah. 
to hang out on, on the weekends and watch reruns of American Idol or whatever it is, whatever. I don't know. I, I feel like I've got a crazy busy life and I think, well, how, I don't understand how people have time for all of these TV shows. But I think there are people who do that and they want to tell themselves that story. And that's fine. I'm, I don't want to tell anybody how to live their life. Sure. What I do want to tell you is that the excuse you're using to justify how you live your life, that's not a valid excuse. Nope, that makes perfect sense. So, so let's dig into into one or two of these of these myths. You know, I mean, a couple of the ones that that really resonated with me: the, the breed myth and the originality myth. Can you can you touch on one or two of those? Yeah. So the breed myth uh, deals with exactly what we're talking about: this nature versus nurture yep. thing. It's it's so tempting to say that certain people just have this genetic ability that makes them more creative and. And, and, you know, we have tried to find this. We've tried to find this on multiple levels. We've tried to find personality types that would be perfect personality types. So we, in psychology, you look at uh, the big five measurements of personality, and it's really hard to correlate any right setting on the big five scale to creativity. The, the one exception is um, you can find one of, the, one of the elements of the big five is openness to experience. And you can find that people who are more open to experiences generally score higher on, on creativity tests. Which that makes perfect sense, but openness to experience by itself is not a personality type. So there is no, it would be great if we could just give everybody an MBTI. And, well, it'd be great if the MBTI was valid, but that's a different issue. Yeah. Uh, it'd be great if we could give everybody an MBTI and find the creative people and just hire them, but we, that doesn't happen. We don't have, there is no one creative personality type. Um, so, you know, you can't find that. So you could begin to look at genetics and the, the best way to look at studies of genes are to look at identical and fraternal twins. And all of those studies come up wanting. Uh, in essence, the best way to describe it is that we've been doing research on this for decades and nature has yet to disprove nurture. Um, I think you talk to a lot of uh, neuroscientists and people who study the interactions of the brain and what they'll say, which uh, I think is I think is a good approach to it, is that to some extent, like anything, genetics will set a range of possibilities. Right. So we think to use a, a less mysterious analogy, think about you know the NBA genetics will determine whether or not you have the height range. But yeah. there is still a lot of uh, nurture in there to determine how far you go inside that range. And creativity is no different. I think there's a range and very few people actually hit the, the limits of the upper limits of that range. Um, but nurture is about that range. And, and I like that because, as we were talking about earlier, that, that means I can uh, I can take control over what I can take control over. I know what it is and I'll move forward uh, on exactly that. So Yeah. And, and, and you know, I mean, the, the overarching theme that I took away from the book is really that instead of making these excuses take you know if if you understand that creativity can be developed take you know and, and you're willing to take action on it do take action on it so why why do you think unlocking creativity is so important to you know entrepreneurs people in business create you know creatives themselves yeah. So I, I think this is funny. I think this is the one part that no one's ever challenged me on, right? Everybody agrees that, oh, we need more and better, great ideas, et cetera, which is, you know, it's probably true. So that's why nobody's arguing. I, I personally believe it's because every, every easy problem to solve has been solved already. Yep. Right. And so the only thing, and, and Einstein has this great quote that you cannot solve a problem on the level of thinking that created it. Right. And so when you think about moving to new levels of thinking, testing out new ideas, et cetera, you're, you're bordering up against this creative or innovative thinking uh, process as a way to get to that next uh, level. So I think the, pro the, the easy problems, the low-hanging fruit have all been solved, and so now we move on to the hard ones. And to do that, I think that actually accompanies this shift from industrial to knowledge economies that we've been talking about and, and are either in the midst of or have already completed, but nobody really uh, can agree on that. 
Um, I think that comes with these sort of wicked problems. And in order to solve those level of wicked problems, we need to have some, some uniformity to that. Sure. Can, can you talk, um, just to bring it to the concrete, can you talk about the Pixar, Ed Catmull example a little bit of how um, they've, obviously, obviously they're a creative company, but just how they've applied it to business itself as well? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so one of the things that, uh, the, when I, in the book, when I talk about Pixar, I actually bring up this really, um, counterintuitive thing. Um, I call it the cohesive myth, but I think it's this idea that when we look at these creative companies, we, we tend to talk about them like it's just a ton of fun to be a part of the company at all. So we talk about companies like Pixar as if, they're these incredibly happy, fun places to, to work. And, and truthfully, the, the campus of Pixar looks like a happy, fun place to work. I mean, there's a, there's a 20 foot tall replica of the Luxo Jr. lamp from the opening of all the films in the front lawn. Right. How could that not be a fun place to work? Yeah. And everybody's allowed to decorate their, their cubicle or their office space however they want. So there are some offices that are, that are set up like tiki huts and all this other crazy stuff. And it, so it seems like, oh, that'd be such a happy, fun, place to work all the time. But what, what Pixar actually knows is that it can't just be fun all the time. They need uh, a lack of, they need, um, they can't be cohesive all the time. They need a lack of cohesion. They need conflict and friction in order to make their process better. Um, Ed Catmull, the founder of Pixar says that every, every, he's not ashamed of saying this. He says every Pixar film sucks when it starts and their whole process is the process of going from suck to non suck. And I love that term non-suck, by the way, because it, it lowers the bar. You don't have to be a creative genius. You just have to not suck because so many people do. All right. Anyway, um, and the way that they do that is with criticism and with conflict. And so they have their they have these dailies, um, sometimes daily, sometimes regular, but they have these, uh, I like to call them shredding sessions because the idea is we'll present the film wherever it is in the process and we'll invite people to come and watch and just shred it apart and point out everything that's not working uh, and offer offer ideas for making it better, but all, all in the service of harnessing criticism to make this uh, project better, to make it go from suck to non-suck. And, and uh, they even use a tool that I talk about in the book, Ed talks about in his, and I actually got, I first became aware of it from um, Peter Simmons's book, Little Bets, which is, you take all of these influences together, ironically, and we're touching back on that originality myth, um, but they, they call it plussing. And plusing is a really cool tool that they take from the world of improv. Have you ever, have you ever taken an uh, improvisational acting class? I never have. Always wanted to, but haven't done it. So if you take one, you will learn that the very first rule of improv is to always accept an offer. And what that means is if you walk on stage and someone says, oh, officer, I'm so glad you're here. You're now a police officer. Doesn't matter what you wanted to be before you got on that <laughs> yep. stage. They extended an offer to you of police officer. You have to take it. And you're always building off of what people are extending you. You're always building off of those ideas. And so if you're going to criticize, that's fine. We need that to get better. But you also have to be building off of the ideas of other people. You have to add a plus. So whether you criticize or you compliment, you have to add a plus. You have to add a suggestion, uh, a, a positive hypothetical, some way that we could fix the very problem that you're pointing out. So it's not enough to say, I don't like the way Woody looks in this scene. You have to say, I don't like the way... What he looks in his scene, that the smile looks inauthentic. What if we narrowed his, his eyelids to make it look like he's having a more authentic human smile? You have to say something like that. And the idea is that if we were just doing conflict all the time, we need conflict to make our ideas better. But if we just do that all the time, it's going to get really, really devastating. And so in order to avoid that, we plus. So people don't walk out feeling dejected. They walk out with ideas that they can use or, or abandon, but they walk out with tons of ideas on how to make their project better. That's great. 
and, and you know, the, the topics in the book to me, this is th- this whole topic of creativity is essential to K through 12 and higher education right now from, you know, like you said earlier, many people believe that that kindergarten is the height of creativity. And that's pretty sad if that's the, if, 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 if that's the height of creativity for all of us, um, you know, f- both from a teacher professional development perspective and, uh, you know, a learner engagement perspective. What do you think we can do to inject this into school culture day to day? Yeah, so um, I have two th- two theories on it all, and uh, I think it's a very uh, systematic problem. And, and I should say these are theories that have no evidence for this. Um, what I do have evidence is for what inspired the theories. So in um, and, and and by the way, I said kindergarten. Paul Torrance, one of the one of the pioneers of, of education research and creativity, particularly in, in um, childhood development. He actually says fourth grade. He yeah. measures kids at different years and says creativity drops off at fourth grade. And I think that's interesting because I think that actually lines up with um, the last myth I talk about in my book is the, is the mousetrap myth. And it's at the core of it is this idea that if you build a better mousetrap, the saying is incorrect. The world won't beat a path to your door. Right. You build a better mousetrap, the world will turn it down. We as humans have a really hard time recognizing new ideas for the sake of useful ideas. And for an idea to be creative, it has to be new and it has to be useful. So if it's new, it departs from the status quo. It's not the tradition. But what do we use to judge whether or not something is useful? We use the status quo. We use tradition. It's Our past experiences are all we have to go on. So they're all we use. And that becomes really, really hard. And so, you know, I think somewhere along, maybe it's fourth grade, but somewhere in early, in, in elementary school, somewhere in early education, we begin to have to um, do less about developing, uh, you know, thinkers and teaching basic stuff. And we have to get really specific on what we're teaching people. Our education system is great at the useful. We are absolutely, I think we're fantastic at taking the existing body of knowledge and the past experiences of others and cramming that into new people's heads, right? It allows us to build every generation and, and what our high schoolers learn is stuff that it took people like Aristotle, their entire life to figure out, right? We're great at that part, which is awesome. We need that. But the thing that we have sacrificed is the novel. In order to to take all of that knowledge and to put people through a system that gets them to retain all of that knowledge, we had to cut out all of the opportunities to play around with new ideas. And so early on, you realize that the way to get ahead in school, ironically, the way to get ahead in any large company is the same way. Um, there's really not a lot of difference. You used to get a report card. Now you get a performance evaluation. The way to get ahead in both settings is to get really good at regurgitating the information that the authority figure is giving you. And furthermore, bonus points, if you can regurgitate it in the, in the dialect, in the tone of voice and the style of that person, right? So it's no secret. Teachers like people who remind them of themselves as children, uh, managers like subordinates who remind them of themselves as subordinates. We like people who are like ourselves. And so, that's what we're rewarding in this system. And, and that works really, really well in an industrial age economy when there was low hanging fruit. And, and truthfully, when we needed an education system that trained people to do things we already knew how to do, and we just needed them to learn how to do it and then do it over and over and over again for, for 40 years. And then we'll give them a gold watch. What we need now is to train people to solve wicked problems, right? In a knowledge age economy, we need a different uh, type of thinking, one that's not just uh, the, the psych terms are the one that's not just convergent, not just good at finding the single right answer. We need thinking that's divergent, one that's thinkers that are good at exploring all of the possibilities and then narrowing down to the convergent. We still need the convergent. I think we do, we do that great. We just need to figure out what we need to add 
onto that to be able to produce people who can solve those wicked problems. Yeah, and I, I just find that that people think when they when they hear the word creativity, they tend to pigeonhole it into specifically creative disciplines like in art or film or theater. Well, see, you you actually did it just there by calling them specifically right, creative. That's disciplines. true. I did exactly. So that's actually theory too. I have a theory that there are some places in the education system where the people who just don't want to conform find solace, right? And those are things like art, things like music, uh, things like film, places where for, for one reason or another, I don't, I, truthfully, I don't know what it is, but for one reason or another, there's a little more psychological safety, there's a little less judgment, there's yeah. a little less pressure to spit back the right answer. Because of that, those people find solace. And combine, you know, compound that over generations and you arrive at people who mentally say, no, these fields are where the creatives are and these fields are where the presumably non-creatives are. But, but creativity as a skill applies to all of them. You know, we, we even joke in business, we joke about how we never want creative accountants. And that may be true, but Intuit is one of the most creative companies on the planet and all they do are taxes and accounting stuff. And they build software for that. So we need it everywhere, yep. right? I think just early on, I think it's easier to find solace in those fields and that's why we treat them that way. And and then the people who don't find solace in that look at it like it's this uncrossable chasm between them and us. That's it. They don't look at engineers as creatives, which they are, or, or, or you know, business disciplines, as you should, said, as applying creativity to those disciplines. So that makes uh, perfect sense. Oh, totally. I like, I like to throw my colleagues for a loop all the time because I'll describe management as the humanities of business. Yeah. And when they really think about it, it actually makes sense, right? Management spends a lot of time trying to masquerade as a science, which, you know, there's science can teach us a ton. I mean, my whole book is about what science can teach us about how to be better managers and leaders. But um, I think we also have to recognize the human element, the more arts element, the more creative element uh, to even that discipline, right? Yep, so. absolutely. So this question's a little bit off topic, but I, I'm, I'm fascinated by um, adversity and how it affects people, how people respond to it in either a positive or negative way. And I'm wondering how you think this, you know, how creativity um, applies to dealing with adversity um, and how people can learn to respond to it in a positive way. If that makes yes. Sense. So this is a really interesting question because I um – so I spent a lot of time thinking about uh, this idea of um, grit, right? You're familiar with this term grit. Uh, Angela Duckworth has done some awesome research on, on grit. And actually, there's been some more recent research on trying to find links between grit and uh, little c creativity, right? So some researchers, I think it's a total con, but some researchers divide creativity between little c and big c. Big c being those creative disciplines we were just talking about, little c being everyday creativity, uh, and they're having trouble, they're having trouble finding it. Um, and I think that's really, I think that's really interesting because I, I think, um, I, I well, for one thing, I think creativity is a process, not just a single moment, but a lot of times for researchers, it's easier to isolate it out to a single moment. So I talked about divergent and convergent thinking earlier, and we need sort of both and we need to do them in an order. And when you have two types of thinking in an order, that's a process, right? And there's a time where, um, adversity, conflict, et cetera, can be really bad. And it's when you're trying to generate lots of those ideas. Mm -hmm. Now that said, when you've narrowed in on the idea, right, then you talk about what we were talking about earlier with the mousetrap myth. Then you realize you've got a good idea and the world is going to reject it, which means the world is going to give you adversity and you need to, to push through on that. So I think at that stage in the process, the people who have faced some level of, of adversity and thus built um, a level of resilience against it, and a level of self-confidence. And, and truthfully, I don't know that it's necessarily about adversity. 
It's about overcoming adversity. Yes. So it's the people who who have experienced ever increasing levels of challenge, right? Because you, you could you could just as easily have a, a, an incredible amount of diversity at an early age and just be ruined. Right. But the people who have have an ever increasing have built that self efficacy to last through the world's reaction. Uh, that is, you know, the mousetrap myth reaction of, of beating down ideas because we can't figure out where the usefulness is and the novelty. So I think that that to me, I, I wouldn't. I don't think there's a prescription like everybody needs to face adversity. Um, but I do think we need to, to recognize it. And possibly, I mean, we already structure a good education system to give students ever increasing more intellectual challenges. I think sometimes maybe what we don't do is take the time to teach them that all of that work that they've been doing has been in the service of building up That's the key. their right. their self-confidence, right? I think we it, it's easier to, you know, to steal one from Carol Dweck and, and Heidi Grant Halverson and, and those researchers. It, it's easier to affirm a fixed mindset of we, we gave you this test. You did well on the test, therefore you're smart. It's a whole lot harder to draw a line between all of the effort a student puts in and then the result on the test. And when the student puts effort in and still fails to show them, well, we just need a little bit more effort and to sort of grow grow that growth mindset, which is a terrible way to phrase it. I apologize, but you get you get what I mean. No, I love that um, work. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So I really think, and, and so I think that's where, if we wanted to think about adversity, grit, growth mindset, et cetera. I, I don't think it comes in the early parts of the creative process. I think it comes in in the part where you know you have your idea, and now it's a matter of making that idea manifest in the world and, and executing on that idea. Yeah, it's an important um, distinction that it's, you're right. It's not about adversity that's going to happen. It's about um, you know facilitating the right response to it or the perceived right response, I guess. It, it, and, and in the spirit of that growth mindset is really the response that you're trying to yeah, to yeah, and, and you know the, the other thing I was I was um, trying to think of as, as I was saying it all is, is um, Marty Seligman's work on post traumatic growth. Yes, right. That that adverse events can trigger post traumatic stress, uh, but on the opposite side of the the distribution is this idea of post traumatic growth. And and I love that they're taking steps to figure out how is it that these people are responding to the event. Can we teach people to actually and can and can we then systematize the the post traumatic growth process when adversity happens? And I think. I'm really interested. I, I wish I knew all the answers on that. It's just something I'm fascinated by, and I hope that we get those. I truthfully, I, so I have a two-year-old and I have a five-month-old. I hope we get those soon because I'm ready to implement them. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I, I'm fascinated by it myself. Okay, now on to some some rapid-fire questions. I I blatantly stole a couple of them from Tim Ferriss, as as we talked about before. Um, you know, if if you feel comfortable answering them, great. Um, so, what is your favorite documentary? So, um, and you told me this ahead of time and I actually had to get into my Netflix queue and look it up. So, uh, two, I'll give you two. Um, the first one I watched a number of years ago that was fascinating. It's uh, called exit through the gift shop. And ironically, I actually think Tim Ferriss told me to watch it. Not directly. It's not like Tim Ferriss and I are our BFF, but uh, I remember him recommending it. It's this fascinating way that this guy has sort of hacked him, his way into the modern art world. Um, and, and how the art world has become so commercialized. And I, I think it's fascinating because the, the central character, I think, is the only one that knows the whole thing is a ruse. Um, so it's just kind of funny to me. Um, but it's also fascinating because it, it, it sort of has this thing, this air of like, this is how seriously people take this. And I think that's kind of funny. And then the other one, the one that I think is actually way more fascinating, it didn't really come out um, with all that much media attention. Um, but it's, I stumbled upon this documentary called Something Ventured. And it's, it's a business documentary. It's about the early, early days of venture capital in Silicon Valley and how venture capital started up. And it's the reason it's fascinating is that 
Um, <clears throat> we love to interview people like Steve Jobs and, and people like uh, the, the traitorous eight that started Intel and, and people that started Oracle. We, we love we love to talk about the entrepreneurs. Very rarely do we talk about the and, or interview the venture capitalists yeah. who put the money up to fund that idea. And especially in light of the mousetrap myth idea that we have a really bad time recognizing uh, good ideas, it's the venture capitalists who have figured out how to recognize good ideas, right? I mean, granted, they also greenlight a lot of stuff that loses money, but it's just a fascinating documentary because it's from the standpoint of the people, not the people who had the idea, but the people who fund the people who have the ideas. And I think there's a lot to learn about how their approach to how do they decide what ideas are, are worth implementing and what are worth abandoning. I happened to stumble upon that as well on Netflix, and I couldn't believe. I, I thought it was, I thought it was fantastic. I couldn't believe that it didn't get any any press mentions either. I didn't hear it from anybody. No, I, I don't. I think it, I think it popped up in my recommendations, and so I watched it, and that was it. And I love it. I, I, um, I haven't taught it in about a year, but when I taught a specific entrepreneurship class, we literally spent two class sessions like pop popcorn. Let's watch this thing because it's just. Where else in 90 minutes can you hear from this whole spectrum of the Silicon Valley in the in the golden age? It's fascinating. Yeah, it is. I have another one. I don't, you've probably seen it, but Hero Dreams of Sushi. Have you? Yeah, yeah. Um, Dan, Dan uh, Pink told me to watch that, and um, it's fascinating, and I wouldn't think it was. I remember I actually watched it with my wife and uh, because it's all subtitled. Yeah. Right. And yeah. and within like 10 minutes, she was out and I just sat there glued to it the whole time. And I don't even, what's funny is she likes sushi. I hate sushi. I was. Amazed, um, yeah, I was amazed by it as well. I was like, oh, come on. I, I have, actually have to watch this thing. But just the um, the magnitude of mastery behind it and the simplicity, but the um, level of craftsman, craft craftsmanship um, that the guy took is just amazing to me. So, yeah. To make to make, you know. Food. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I, that's, this sounds awful to any chefs that might be watching, but, but you know, food is food is this beautiful art, but it can also be a commodity, and it just depends on the way you look at it. And I think that's, I mean, I think that's the same thing with creativity. Uh, every field has the capacity to be a commodity or to be a, a place where works of art are created. Uh, it's just a matter of what your perspective is and the story you're telling yourself about that field. That's right. So I'll I'll modify the other question. I, I originally was going to ask what is the number one book you give this as a gift. It's it tends to be a little little difficult for people. But what what's your favorite book? Do you have a favorite book? <laughs> that's yeah. I don't know. That's even harder. <laughs> um. So let me, if I can, let me answer that on on two questions. Um. Yeah. So uh, I am. So I'm a Christian. So you know, you, we we have this thing called the Bible. We read it all the time, and I'm fascinated recently with this uh, with the Book of Ecclesiastes, which is even if you're not a Christian, just get this book. You can buy just that one as just an ancient wisdom text um, because I think it's been it's been mis it's been misappropriated in a lot of cases where people in American English speakers think it's the book that's all about how everything is meaningless, and meaningless is a bad way to translate the word Hevel, which is a Hebrew word, and what Hevel just means is transient. It it, it brings to mind pictures like vapor or smoke mm -hmm. or mist. And I think that's an incredible way to look at our time on the earth, right? Our time on the earth is, is limited. And that doesn't mean that it's all meaningless. It means that every single thing we should do, we should savor. Whether we're making sushi, whether we're teaching people, whatever it is, um, we should savor it because it will not last. It's transient. It's a myth. It's, it's Havel. Um, so there's, so there's that one. And then, um, oh, geez, uh, <laughs> from a business book standpoint, there's, there's all sorts of stuff. Um, I, I have, I'll give, I'll give credit where credit is due. So for, for me, um, I don't, I actually don't read this often. Uh, I probably only read it three times in, in my life, but when I read Malcolm Gladwell's blink was the first book that made me realize that social science could be told as a story 
and therefore could spread yeah. the way that it needed to. <clears throat> so I, I'll pick that one, but it more for its, its impact in my life and career than for like, I, I don't read it all that often anymore. Truth, truth be told, I probably read way more boring stuff way more often, um, which is a shame. I probably should reread it. But the other thing that's weird, I don't know if, if you found this, as soon as you start a podcast and it gets some traction, suddenly there are just all of these books that show up at your house that people want you to read. Um, so I spend way too much time reading those and not enough time getting back to reading the really, really good storytellers. There you go. Exactly. And then my last question, the one that people usually get really pissed at me for, um, but if you could have dinner with one person you admire, past or present, who would it be and why? Milton Hershey. Not right. even, not even this, uh, totally, totally easy. Um, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to avoid the easy answers like Jesus or yes. Gandhi or mother Teresa. <laughs> um, Milton, Milton Hershey was an amazing man that a lot of people, I have, I have two, uh, role models in, in my sort of life. Um, one is, is Lincoln and the other is Milton Hershey as far as the leaders. And uh, not a lot of people know Milton's story. So Milton overcame a lot of adversity, like we talked about, um, failed in business multiple times and, and struck it rich actually in caramel. And then caramel allowed him to experiment in chocolate. But the thing that's really cool about Milton is that I think Milton was one of the original sort of social entrepreneurs. Hmm. So Milton, not a lot of people know this, although it's on every Hershey bar ever. Milton and his wife were um, couldn't have children. His, his wife had some um, disease that kept them from having children. It actually ended up claiming her life. But before that, they adopted a couple of children. And then when she died, Milton has the most the best response to adversity, the best coping strategy I've ever seen. Milton actually decides in her honor to start a school for orphans. And so it, it exists to this day. It's the Milton Hershey School for Orphans. It educates, it graduates as upwards of a thousand people every single year, K through, K through 12 boarding education. Um, and what's interesting is that when right before Milton passed away, he was smart enough to put his share of the Milton Hershey company into a trust. The trust manages the school. So the, the majority shareholder of Hershey Foods is the Milton Hershey School for Orphans. Wow. Right. So it's not it's not a case of like CSR where a company donates money to a school for orphans. The school for orphans owns the company. Right. <laughs> and Milton had the sort of wisdom to see that this is the way uh, that I can keep this mission going th throughout it all. And so I would just love to talk to him not only about um, about the early days of adversity and that sort of stuff, but just also what what drove him to think about, you know, we're, we're having all of these discussions now about social entrepreneurship, about about triple bottom line, all of these fancy terms that we're talking about in business, but really just the idea of uh, the level of responsibility to do good. And at a time where we had all of these robber barons, you had this guy, Milton Hershey, being essentially the, you know, the captain of industry for chocolate. And yet knowing he had a responsibility to his community and to do more with his wealth than just uh, enjoy his, his wealth and maybe found a college later, you know? And so I think he's an absolutely amazing person. I have, um, I, I don't invest as a rule, I don't invest in individual stocks, but I do own one share of stock in the Milton Hershey Company. And it's because the stock certificates have a picture of Milton on them, and I have that hanging in my office. So no one even need to think about it, Milton Hershey. <laughs> that is an amazing story. I'm going to have to do some, some research on Milton now. Um, so, David, I could talk to you about this stuff for hours on end, but, but um, if the audience wants to support you in any way, where can they find the book, um, website, podcast, all that stuff? Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm fortunate enough to have a really awkward name. So if you type David Burkus into uh, Mr. Google, Mr. Google will spit back me. There's there's one other Dave Burkus I know that has any online presence, and he's a finance guy. So you'll know it's you'll know which one is which right away. Okay. Um, the the best thing to do actually, if you're interested in in the ideas in the book, etc., 
Um, you, you can check it out on Amazon, obviously, but even if you, if you need a little bit more oomph, there's a ton of free resources on my site, davidberkus.com, that are all around um, the myths. There's everything from um, workbooks and exercises to um, talk, me giving talks around the idea so you can, you can sit and listen if you don't, if sitting and reading is not your thing. There's all sorts of, and, and interviews with a lot of the people that I, I talk about in the book, we do in-depth interviews on, so there's all sorts of cool resources there, so, so check that out. And then, um, then from there, from that site, it's really easy to connect with me on however you want, your social network of choice, email, everything but my cell phone number is pretty much on there. David, thanks for taking the time. Uh, you know, really appreciate your work and, and, and keep it up. Th- thanks for everything you do. No, thank you for having me. All right. See you, David. See you. And there you have it. Thanks again for listening to this week's show. Really excited to continue bringing great content and guests to you. Definitely share this episode out if you enjoyed it on Facebook, Twitter, any social arena you are interested in, in sharing it. And again, visit us at nickdonardo.com. Thanks again for listening, and see you soon. Mm-hmm.